Today's passage comes from John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptising and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Uh, I want to introduce um, uh, someone that you all know, but just uh, by way of introduction for some of you that don't, Marissa Stubbs is going to be bringing the word uh, for us this morning. So you don't need an introduction. Uh, Marissa has been a part of Christ City uh, for quite some time. She uh, serves as one of our elders, uh, one of our founding elders. Uh, actually, that's, yeah, what about that? Um, and uh, has uh, served and lived in the city for, for quite a while. And um, when I first met Marissa, began to hear more of her story, one of the things that I said to her and continue to say is that in many ways, she serves as an elder to our city. Uh, and so we're really, um, she's a gift to the city. She's a gift to our church. Uh, and so as she comes to share from John 3, I pray that we would all have ears to hear uh, and then t- that uh, we would be convicted to step out into our world motivated by faith. So I'm going to pray one more time for Marissa as she comes uh, to present to us. God, I do pray that you would speak to us. That you would speak to us in, um, in strength and power and tenderness. That you would comfort us. That you would challenge us. God, that you would help us to see ourselves more clearly because your spirit is at work and alive in your word and in your servant. God, I pray that um, you would use Marissa even in these moments that are ahead for us to hear well from you so that we might be faithful followers of Jesus, even as we look back at our uh, forebrother, uh, John. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, let's drop in and get started. Um, so... In the most important way um, this morning, uh, this will be an unoriginal sermon. Uh, And that's for two reasons. One, because the point that uh, I'm going to make today is the point that we've been making for the past six to seven weeks. We've been in a series um, on the gospel according to John. Um, And each week we end, uh, we end and probably start and probably say it about three times in the middle. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's been the refrain week after week, and today is gonna be no different. 
And the other reason that this sermon is going to be unoriginal is because it's the fourth time that we've encountered John the Baptist. And John is a steady character. He's a very consistent um, person. And so if you've been here or if you know anything about the character of John the Baptist, some of what we learn today should actually seem inevitable. So a quick refresher um, on uh, or, or an introduction to if you've not uh, heard or know of John the Baptist. Um, so John, uh, and, and two things. There are lots of Johns. John's running all over the place. There's John, the gospel writer, and then there's John, um, John the Baptist. And so as much as I can, I will try to identify which one I am um, speaking about. And if I don't say it, um, may the force be with you. Um, so. Um, so the John 1 opens, um, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, um, the word was with God from the beginning. And then it goes on, and this is talking about Jesus, and then it says that everything was made was made by him, um, and nothing was made was made outside of him. And then it says, and he was the light, and this light was the life of men, and it says, and the darkness could not overcome it. And then the very, this is the first five verses of John, and then immediately, there was a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. So Jesus is on the scene, and then boom, John is on the scene, okay? Then he says, he, he came, then John, um, John the writer says that John came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And then John testifies concerning um, Jesus saying, this is the one um, of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And then he confessed freely while asked many, many times, who are you, who are you, who are, who are you? I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am the voice crying in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Look, then he says, look, John the Baptist says, look, this is the Lamb of God. This is when he sees Jesus. Um, and he says that a couple of times. And the second time that he says that, two of his disciples who are with him immediately leave him and join Jesus. Okay? That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, immediately leave him and join, join Jesus. Okay? So this is what we know about John the Baptist from the text. One additional thing that I want to um, add about John the Baptist that's not from the text, we call him John the Baptist in Western Christian tradition, but in Eastern Christian tradition, he's actually called John the Forerunner. He's called John the Forerunner because he is a prelude or precursor. He's a warning. He's an indication. He is a sign. He is a herald, a harbinger of what is to come. And I think that's right, that he's not defined by what he does which is to baptized, but he is defined by his relationship to the Christ. Okay, so you may, you may just hear me call him John the Forerunner from, from now on, that may happen. So, um, so let's jump into the text, let's jump into the text. So after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Now Jesus, is, Jesus and his disciples, like so this, at this point Jesus has been baptized and now Jesus is hanging out in the Judean countryside with his disciples, um, formerly, a couple formerly known as John's disciples, um, and he's out there baptizing people. And not very far away, that you can, they can, they can kind of see one another, um, John is at a, also at a place 
Um, and at this place, there's a lot of water. Anon, the word means springs, which means that there was a lot of water present. And it was important that there was a lot of water present because lots of people were actually coming to be baptized. The original Greeks suggest that there was like an endless wave of people coming, like the people kept on coming to be baptized. And I think it's because, and even some of the commentaries suggest that there there, that people recognize that something is happening, something, something significant is happening, something social, something cultural, something spiritual, like something, something is happening and the people are coming to be a part of it. This was before, and so the text continues, this was before John was put into prison. Okay, so this is your spoiler alert for what's coming in some sermon down, down the line. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to them. So John's disciples are disputing with a certain Jew and some texts um, translate it and say Jews in plural. And let's be real, they're all Jews. Like, I don't know why they do this. Like, it's like they were arguing with the Jews. I'm like, John's disciples are Jews. So the Jews over here are arguing with the Jews over here. Um, and these Jews are just called John's disciples, okay? But they're all arguing about the ceremonial washing. And, um, and the details aren't given about the substance of the dispute. Um, but it's enough to throw John's disciples off their game and cause them some concern. It's enough for them to look over at what Jesus is doing and to see that the people are beginning to go to Jesus in increasing measure. It's enough for them to be disturbed and it's enough for them to come to John and say, why should the people who are coming to you now go to him? So what was the life of a first century disciple? Often it meant leaving family and relatives and friends for lengthy periods of time. It meant traveling the country under austere conditions. And look, if you were John's disciple, it meant a life on like subsisting on like crunchy insects and wild honey. And I'm sure John was like, what? You got your protein, you got your sugar, you got your fiber, what else do you need? Um, and it meant total commitment. It meant leaving home and comfort and familiarity and income and a prospective disciple had to first be sure about priorities. Because if this is what was truly wanted, there was going to be no small sacrifice for it. And so all at, uh, up until this time, like all the, uh, all the men um, in sort of Jewish culture, um, traditional Jewish culture, like from like, like little bitty, they have studied scripture and they have memorized scripture. And as they've gotten older, like they're like they prove, you know, they have to show that they're knowledgeable in the word. Right. And so this is this is true of all young men growing up in this culture, but it's only a few. And then even less than that, who seek out to study with a rabbi and John is a rabbi. And so very few seek and are chosen to spend their lives with a rabbi. So this is a privilege. And not only is it, it's a, is it, is it a privilege, but it is a very well-defined path to, you know, hashtag career goals, hashtag life goals, right? This is a clear path. And this disciple is more than a student. Like they have given their lives away, not just to get something now so I can go define what my own path is. They're saying, I am joining you because I want to be who you are and one day have my own disciples to tutor them in the ways exactly as you have tutored me. 
So I've given up everything. I've given up everything to be with you. So this is an intense and very personal um, form, of, form of, of, of imitation. So these men have made significant sacrifices for John the Baptist because they hope to do what he's doing in the future, right? So this is like, John, you're on the, the list of 100 best companies to work for. Um, and now, all of a sudden, I see that you're not doing so well. I see that there are rumblings in the water of this thing beginning to fall apart. What does that mean for my future? So they are unsettled and they are anxious. Oh, but John, John replies, this is a lot of paper up here, by the way. I'm trying to keep myself straight. We need like longer things, I'm sorry. So to this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah. Been saying that from the beginning. From like verse, from verse six, I've been saying that. Like, we're in chapter three, you know, verse 22 or 27, right? I am not the Messiah. I can't save you. I'm sent ahead of him. I'm just preparing the way. And so he's been, he's been saying this. He's been saying this and they've heard it, but do they know it? And they know it, but do they really believe it? Have they they've been living their lives? Like they've been entrusting this word that they've heard it again and again and again. And, and sometimes I feel that we're that way. Wait, I, I've invested in this thing. I've invested in this job. I've invested in this relationship. I've invested in this people, in this city, in this church, um, right? And you're telling me that it's not giving me everything that I gave up for it? It's not gonna give me the life that I want back? And this answer, no, and no. A few weeks ago, Watson preached that, that John, John's baptizing folks was actually about stirring up the people in the understanding that their belief was insufficient, that their belief was inadequate. And he's preparing people to ask questions for which the only answer is Jesus. He's preparing, he's, it's about helping the people to lay aside a belief that is too small. John's, disciple John's disciples have a belief that's too small because they're overly invested in the decisions that they've made and the sacrifices that they've made and the, times, the time that they've spent and the relationships that they now have. But John, John is not thrown off by this news. He doesn't start concocting plans about how to maintain his job security just because the disciples think some new competition has rolled into town. He's not saying, well, we'll leave this career and start a new career. I'm like, I discovered Jesus, so maybe I can get a percentage cut of whatever he's bringing in. Maybe I can do a tell-all story. Maybe I can write a book. Like, right? He's not trying to do any of that. Like, there's no jealousy over what he might be losing. There's no envy over what he no longer has. There's no anger. There's no rivalry, even though that Jesus' growing influence is going to be at his own expense. And so sometimes when Jesus comes on the scene, it might feel like we're losing. It might feel like we're losing. It might not look good from cultural standards. It just might not, but it's for our joy and it's for his glory. Believe so that you may have life. So then John goes on to, he's, he's continuing and he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine and it is now complete and he must become greater and I must become less. So unlike in the other gospels, under like in, in Matthew, Mark um, and Luke, um, John in his gospel, he has a tendency to allude or hint at Old Testament scripture. So there are times where he will quote it directly. 
But most of the time, it's a certain use of words or a certain use of phrases, like even in the beginning where this gospel opens and it says, in the beginning there was the word, which reminds us of Genesis 1 when it says, in the beginning, right? And it's stirring up the imagination of the people. And so when he says bride and bridegroom, that is a phrase that stirs up the imagination of the people. And I think it's more than just like, oh, I've, you know, I, like, these words, it makes me think about something. No, I think it's evocative and powerful. And the only way that I can like really conjure like what this feels, this is what it feels like. This is actually what I think it would feel like to me. And so um, I think it's about like, yes, yes. <laughs> Who knows this? If you know it, yes, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. close that so right so this is <laughs> so if you don't know this this is that was De La Soul's Me Myself and I written in 1989 all right it is like the soundtrack of my growing up um, if you're doing the calculations yes I have lived that long and that 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 is true um, but if you hear the back like right I heard this and I was like oh like this is my song but if I were in the car maybe listening to that with my dad or my mom, they who are here, by the way, do you like, they would have heard that, but they might have also known hearing that song that it was also this. So this is 1979. This is the Funkadelic's knee deep, okay? Okay, so right? So that's what this experience is when John says, bride and the bridegroom. So they're hearing what John is saying right now, but they are hearing a whole new set of memories and a whole new set of emotions, right? They're hearing a whole people that came before him, like before them, right? So that's what's happening, right? And so, so John is saying John and the bridegroom and what he's, and, and if, jo if John's saying bride and the bridegroom is the sample, the original tract is Isaiah 62.4, okay? And I'm gonna read it from the message. And it says, this is written to the people of Israel. No more will anyone call you rejected and your country will no longer be called ruin because you will be called Hephzibah, my delight. And your land, Beulah, will be called married because God delights in you and your land will be like a wedding celebration. For a young man, as a young man marries his bride, so your builder marries you. And as a bridegroom is happy in his bride, so your God is happy with you. So John is just using a few words to conjure up like a wedding celebration. And, and what this means is the, the identity, the name, the provision, the covering, the protection, the covenant, the joy of an entire people and moving them from death to life. That is what John is saying when he's like, the bridegroom doesn't belong to me. But the, but the friend is happy when the bridegroom comes on the scene. And so that's what he's saying, right? And, and, and just as an, a, like an aside, like, right? Like this is a communal text. So please don't say that this is an individual application. Like, right? Like Isaiah 64, 62.4 is meant to be an, a 
text applied to a people, not to a person, okay? So please don't read this text and just be like, oh, God wants to move me from my rejection to like being loved and marriage is like, no, that's a bad interpretation. <laughs> no, don't go there and get, get some prayer about that, okay? <laughs> okay, so. Now, what, now that's what John is saying and that's what John is experiencing, right? He is experiencing being on the lookout for Jesus and Jesus coming and his joy being complete. And that's what it looks like. But, but in the real, like, it doesn't look super swank because he has a popular ministry that's diminishing. He's giving disciples away. His disciples are deserting him. His disciples that are around him are anxious about their futures. He's saying, I must decrease and grow less important and have less influence. And from a human perspective, John's story is only going to get worse as the passage says that he's going to prison soon. And so this trusting in Jesus and this experiencing joy in Jesus beyond the decline of a job or a career of an investment, things that we've made sacrifices for, that's what John the forerunner is doing. And that's what, he's, that's what he's signaling and signing and modeling for us. And so what does it mean for us to experience complete joy when Jesus shows up, no matter, no, no matter what that means? No matter what that means. Does Jesus, it, and, and then the other side, is Jesus the one that's bringing us the complete joy? When I say I have complete joy, like is Jesus the first one in my mind? When I'm saying that I have peace, like am I saying that that's rooted in Jesus? When I'm saying like, oh, this life, am I thinking that Jesus is the one that that's rooted in? I'm going to come back to that in just a second. The one who comes from above is above all. And so John is still talking. He's saying the one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from earth belongs to the earth and, the, and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. And he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. So we, um, uh, Andrea pointed this out in her sermon last week with uh, Jesus and Nicodemus that we have this juxtaposition of from above and from heaven and from earth. And it's important to note that the word used here when it says from earth is G, where we get geo, geological geography, right? It's the word for earth. It's not the word for world, which normally connotes um, sinfulness or something that's in opposition to the gospel or the kingdom, okay? So G, just no, denotes it's something that's limited. Not necessarily that's something that's not good. Like, so these are things that are good, but it connotes limitation. And heaven connotes things that have no end. And so this is, and so what John is doing is he's setting up just the same way that, that Jesus set up for Nicodemus. John is setting up for his disciples the difference between choosing things that are limited and choosing things that are unending. And the limited things may be good things, but simply because of the fact that they're limited, they are destined to die. And from a kingdom of God standpoint, they are already dying. And so Jesus is the one who comes from heaven and is above all. And Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. And the message version says, no one wants to deal with these facts. Like we don't, like we want to live our lives the way that we want to live them and have a little Jesus on the side, right? So no one wants to deal with these facts. And so John is saying he's from earth. Jesus is from above. John's witness is excellent, but John is not Jesus. And while there are things that may be good, they are neither life, nor they are new life, nor they are life unending. 
And this is the question that John's disciples now have to engage, and that's our question too. So let's come back to that, does Jesus bring you joy? Does he bring you peace? And does he bring you life? Or are we looking for it somewhere else? You know, are we looking for love in all the wrong places? You know, what happens? What happens? What happens when we believe that anything other than Jesus can bring us complete joy and peace in life? Because we long for peace and joy in life. Like we were created for peace and joy in life. It is what we were created for. And Lisa um, gave this excellent quote. I was going to say Jesus, but Jesus through Lisa um, gave this excellent quote from um, Father Ronald um, Rawheiser um, in her sermon a few weeks on John the Baptist um, a few weeks ago. And she and um, she quoted the father saying, um, well, Father Ronald saying spirituality is ultimately what we do with our longings and our desires. Our spiritual life is ultimately what we do with our longings and our desires. What are you doing with your longings and your desires? And do they get completed in Jesus? So I'm going to show you this photo. I don't know if this is, this is a photo of something. I don't know if it's going to come up. It was a little dark and we tried to lighten it. Is it, is it, oh, it's up. Look, I'm looking down here. Like it's, okay, so this is small. I apologize. I should have like did this a little bit better. But um, so, can you hear me? Okay, so what this is saying is it says, I did a Bible study uh, 15 years ago, right? And this was one of the handouts. This is like a piece of like all these columns. Um, but it says like, like under life, it's just like, what does it mean to trust Christ as my life, as my source, as my provision, as my most intimate relationship, as my sense of okayness, as my acceptance, as my rightness, as my righteousness, as my understanding friend. I blacked those things out because I was like, I don't want to deal with those right now. Um, I'm just like, it's just too confusing. We don't have time to go there. Um, I'm just going to say, I was just like, we got to keep this on time as much as we can. Adequacy, like how do I trust Christ as my adequacy and my identity, my comfort, my peace, my reputation or my name? my strength, my support, my protector, my savior. How do I trust Christ as my defender? And, not, and, and for those of you who care about justice in the world, like not just our defender, but the defender for others. Like how do we also trust this for other people too? Because sometimes we try to stand in the place of Jesus for other people and provide these things for them. No, give them Jesus. Um, so defender. Um, how do I trust Christ as, as my security and my confidence and my significance and my wisdom and my sufficiency and my fullness, right? I, 15 years ago, I, I still pull this out on the regular, on the regular, because this is an ongoing thing. This is an ongoing journey. Like, I think I got something and I'm like, oh, really? Like, oh, we're dealing with that now. Like, right, and now we're dealing with three things at once. I don't have enough time. Um, so, so how do we trust Christ? As these things, like, right, like these are the things that make for life. These are the things that make us feel that we are living a full life. And it's not wrong to desire those things. Those things are good. But how you get them, oh, how you get them, that's what matters. That's what matters. So what would have happened if John had chosen differently? And what if he'd taken on the anxiousness of his disciples and decided that he'd better preserve and protect his baptism, baptismal ministry at all costs? Well, I think two things would have been compromised. I think that life unending, um, I think life unending for himself, um, like in that, in that kind of area of his, of his life would have been compromised because he would have been choosing something that would have a literal end. Like if he's choosing ministry over Jesus, like that 
is going to have, even if it's ministry for Jesus, it's going to have an end. It's going to end. And then the other thing that would have been compromised is the witness that he was called to give. Because now he's no longer testifying about the Christ. He's testifying about his ministry, about the Christ. And those are two different things. Those are two different things. Um, so the first audience um, to hear John's gospel, like to hear it, to read it, um, John's gospel, they're living under Roman imperial rule, all right? And, and most of the time, like, right, we don't ever hear is like, remember, the Romans were there. They were occupying the nation. Like, the, the people were under oppression, okay? This is a daily, not only the characters in John's gospel, but also the first readers. They are still living under the Roman Empire, okay? And so they're having to make choices all over the place. Is it going to be the Roman Empire that gives me life, which says in every way, here's how you have life? Or are they going to say, I'm going to live this life of faith and find life there? Andrea gave this lovely phrase in her sermon last week where she said, Jesus disrupted the status quo. The definition of status quo is the existing state of affairs, especially regarding social, political, economic, or cultural issues. That is the status quo. Jesus is disrupting all of it. And it's interesting that status quo is Latin, having deep roots in empire. It's very interesting to me. <laughs> it's just interesting to me. Um, and it also has a very eerie overlap um, with, with this uh, piece of um, empire. So this is uh, from Paul James and Tom Nairn, and they give this definition of, of empire. It says, empire is about extending power across space over which one has no um, prior or legal given sovereignty, right? So they're coming in and taking over. And it's in the domains of economics, politics, and culture where they're gaining some massive and some, some measure of extensive influence over the space uh, for the purposes of extracting and accruing value, okay? This is what empire is all about. And in his book on John and Empire, um, in some initial explorations, Warren Carter says the, the Roman Empire is pervasive. Even when Rome is not explicitly mentioned in John's gospel, its empire is experienced daily as the realm in which they live their lives. And not only is it daily experience, but there's also a high level of like navigation and negotiation and to some extent accommodation for the empire and its influences. And in her book, Being the Church in the Midst of, of Empire, Karen Bloomquist refers to the processes and effects of imperial domination and how they're in tension with this biblical vision for, for life. And saying empire poses deeply theological challenges because of how all-encompassing all it becomes, permeating how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, how we think about our world, how we think about our hopes, and how we think about our desires. We cannot afford to read any of the Gospels, but particularly John's Gospel, removed from its social, political, economic, and cultural realities. This is particularly uh, important like when uh, Watson did his sermon on like um, overturning the, the, the tables in the temple and like chasing out the moneylenders and like how Jesus comes and like removes shame because of the structures that are around. 
confessions that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Oh, before I get there. So Warren Carter says, in, in, again, in John and Empire, he says that the entire Gospel of John, actually, like his sort of thesis for his commentary is saying that the entire Gospel of John emphasizes what is it emphasizes getting disentangled from reliance on imperial society. That's actually what the whole gospel is about, how to become disentangled from the culture and disentangled from what it is saying, like, no, do these things and have life this way. Like, that's what the whole gospel is actually about, is disentangling yourself from empire in order to believe in Jesus and have, have life. Confessions that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the certainty of eternal life do not exist apart from the Roman world, but are part of negotiating that world. And that is true both for the Jesus believers in John's gospel and for the initial audience for whom the gospel was written. And I would say that the same is true for us. Our confessions that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the certainty of eternal life in him do not exist apart from our world. They do not exist apart from our culture. And we need to figure that out. And we need to struggle with that question. Otherwise, we are living lives that are compromised. And our witness is also compromised. And I think that that's what's happening now. Richard Horsley in... Um, in Jesus and the Empire, the Kingdom God and the New World Disorder um, says that some Americans cannot avoid the awkward feeling that they are now more analogous to Imperial Rome than they are to the ancient Middle Eastern people who celebrated their origin and God's liberation from harsh service to a foreign ruler and lived according to the covenantal principles of social economic justice. It is, it's an awkward, it's an awkward feeling. We can't avoid it. So it happens. So what happens when dominant American culture increasingly gets in the way of our Jesus believing? So we're going to do a quick little exercise. Uh, it's going to be quick because we, we, we got we to gotta go. Um, <laughs> but um, maybe this will show up in your small groups. I don't know. Maybe it will show up. Um, so believe in this and have life. So these are some things that I just pulled from like when I think about dominant American culture and when I think about like life in D.C., like what do I think about like people pursuing? These are some things that I came up with. Right. And, and, I, and I just want to say I'm not saying that these things are inherently bad. I mean, I might say that like, you know, where, where is it? The self-advertisement on social media, I might say that that's bad, but whatever, that's just my own thing. That's my own thing, right? But believe in what and have life. Are you believing in your career and having life? Or your status or whatever, success and achievement? Are you believing in legacy or material comfort and possessions or financial security or disposable income? Like, what are you believing in? Like, right, like the list continues, it goes on. Self-advertisement, privilege, degrees in education. Is your life and sense of okayness and rightness with the world in the power and influence that you have? Is it in your busyness, like your schedule, and not being alone at home on Friday night? <laughs> Is it in your image and your reputation? Like how you have, like how we have to dress and how are the clothes that we have to wear? And that, like, is it, is it rooted in that? Like I had a friend who one time, she was just like, for Lynn, I'm giving up makeup. She had a high-powered job, and she said, for the next 40 days, I'm giving up makeup because this isn't, my image isn't where my, like, my Jesus is where my influence is. And that's what makes me feel like I can present, like, confidence to the world. It's my Jesus, right? 
whatever relationships that you have, marriage and having children. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, uh, spouses and babies aren't good. Like, you know, I'm all for the spouses and babies, right? But if it's pursuing it at all costs and saying that this is the thing that's gonna give you unending life, no, no, no. Independence and self-sufficiency. I'm like, I love independence, love it, you know? But at the, at, at the cost of, of being with Jesus' people and belonging to the church and community, no. At that point, independence isn't life. Interdependence is. Got to give that up. Our individualism and the way that we say that we're going to define ourselves. Mm -mm. Define that by how Jesus says you are. Where you live, your neighborhood, your house and home. Look, this could go. This could go on. This list could go on. You could add your own things. It doesn't have to be from dominant American culture. It might be the story that was told to you and your family. It could be some things that you learned along the way. You know, it could be from whatever culture you're from, and that's your original. Uh, that's your original story, and that's the thing that you're struggling with. I just, I just put some things up related to dominant American culture. And again, this isn't about judging anyone. This isn't about making anyone feel guilty. Um, this isn't about like saying like, oh, like Marissa said, like, you know, careers and material comfort, you know. No, it's not about that. And neither is it saying that living ascetic lives or cloistered lives like somehow are automatically more spiritual. I'm not saying that either. What I am saying is that as Jesus believers, we need to struggle with the question of what place the pursuit or the preservation of these things have in our lives and what we think they're giving us. And if they're displacing Jesus, they have to go. Or we at least have to renegotiate our relationship with them. Like, you know, don't get rid of, I gotta get rid of you spouse, cause you know, <laughs> I'm not advocating that at all. Um, so John the Forerunner, um, John the Forerunner, and I'm, I'm wrapping this up. John the Four, am I wrapping this up? John the Forerunner says that, <laughs> John the Forerunner says that he came to be a witness to testify. And, and we're also witnesses. We're also called to testify. And if we're not careful, our witness and our testimony will not be about Jesus, even if we use his name because our ways are not his ways. Are we considering how the integrity of our gospel message might be compromised because we're not aware of how we might be compromised by the culture in which we live? And if this is how we have life, then this is the life towards which we can, this is the only life towards which we can point others. And, and if, what if they don't have access to it? Because here's the thing, that list, that list is very much the American middle class lifestyle. What if people don't have access to it? And somehow we're saying that that's the gospel. If they don't have access to it and we're saying that those are the things that make for our lives and then we're telling them this is what makes for your life, then we are unconsciously yet falsely and powerfully convincing people of a gospel that is no gospel. And we are pointing them towards a life that only leads to death. Everybody should know Ekamenia Wan. Everybody should know her. She is one of the three, um, three sisters on Truth's Table podcast. Um, if you haven't listened to it, you should. So Ekamenia Wan, um, Christina Edinson, and uh, Michelle Higgins do a weekly podcast called Truth's Table, the um, cultural, cultural midwives of truth, right? So um, in one of the podcasts, um, Ekamenia says, do we believe this gospel? If so, it needs to be embodied in our practice and in our lives. 
The American church is not presenting a good witness to unbelievers. We are not presenting living water to them. We are presenting poisonous lead-filled waters like those found in Flint, Michigan. You would not drink that water. Nobody's drinking that water. Everybody's importing water still. They're importing water because they know that, that and that's what we're like, we're like, like saying, like, no, turn on your tap, drink this water. No, 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 that's not, that's not the living water. So how are our lives disrupting the status quo? And even as we answer this question, like, right, like, let's not try to, let's try not to be easily satisfied with the answer. <laughs> let's try not to be easily satisfied with the answer. Or even compare ourselves to others and saying, look, we're doing more than they are. We need to struggle with that question. I need to struggle with that question still. So yes, we're closing. So um, last, uh, last set of scriptures. Um, so John concludes, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God ha has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. So John's words here are very similar. Um, John the Baptist's words, recorded by John the Gospel writer, um, are very similar to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verses 15 through 18. So even though Jesus is not present, this is pretty much almost exactly what was said in the, in the passage previous to it. And I think that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work in John. To, to, to be giving the exact same message that Jesus has already given. But John is saying this knowing that he's limited, but he says, to Je but he says about Jesus, but Jesus has the spirit without limit, without limit. The father dearly loves the son, dearly loves the son, and has placed everything into his hands. And for me, that means two things. It means that nothing is placed in our hands. We get to hold on to nothing. But everything is placed in Jesus' hands. It makes sense to hold on to him. Everything, com everything comes from him. 2 Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has given us everything that we need for godly life. And that word life is Zoe. It's the same word of life that's used throughout the passage of John. It's the same word of life used in this passage. Whenever, whenever John is talking about life, he's using the same word. Everything that we need is given in his divine power. This is what it looks like for John to believe in the son. If the, if the son is the only way to ending life, then denying the son means that you'll have a limited life. It already has an expiration date. It closes by saying whoever rejects the son will not see life. And seeing life means experiencing life, participating in life, enjoying life. So we can either see life or we can cut ourselves off from that life and hold on to what we have. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God and in believing him that you might have life. And then we ourselves, we become the sign that points to Jesus, just like John, just like John. So there's this phrase um, that I like. Um, it's not original to me, but it says that Jesus continues to disciple the, Jesus continues to disciple the undiscipled um, places of our heart. And I like that. I like it a lot because it says that our Jesus believing is, is a long process. 
It's a lifelong process. So if there's a certain area where you have been um, trusting for something else that only Jesus can bring, like, it just, just means that there's a new place that needs to be brought under his care and under his attention, under his tutelage and under his love. I'm going to close in prayer. Father, we want life. We want life. Um, and we confess that there are places that we have, um, we have tried to get life outside of this Jesus, outside of your Jesus, outside of your son. I pray that you would help us to change our minds about that and agree and agree with you that it's not about what we do. It's not about what we have. It's not about what we earn. That we can agree with you that if we believe in your son, that we'll have life unending. For everything, it's about who Jesus is. It's about believing in him. It's about entrusting ourselves to him. Everything is in his hands. Spirit of God, help us to have confidence in the Christ. Help us to believe in him and his love. Help us to choose life and live. In Jesus' name, amen.